Hello again, this is Brian Martins, and you're listening to The Spoken Symbol. The Spoken Symbol is a poetry podcast that brings awareness, transformation, and deep intuition into your life. Once upon a time, there was a story about the universe, and it began with words spoken. There was nothing else except spoken words. These words became symbols, and these symbols were crafted to have meaning. People continued to craft words that had meaning. They built their world upon these meanings. Poetry is a time-honored symbol for us as humans. We choose to inform our inner and outer lives with meaning through the sound of poetry. Please join me in the listening of poetry. Open all your senses to the meaning that poets give to our world. Relax, take a deep breath, and allow yourself to be transported by the metaphorical language of poetry. Magic happens once upon a time. So this is the uh, article and podcast number 34. And the title of this article and podcast is The Narcissist and Empathy. So I want to start with a story today about Milton Erickson. And so a part of his life, uh, one morning in 1919, Milton Erickson was 17 years old and he awoke finding part of his body was paralyzed. And he would later become, you know, one of the pioneers in hypnotherapy and become one of the best known and, and most influential psychologists and psychiatrists in the 20th century. But after that initial morning, each day, in that day in August, the paralysis spread and he was soon diagnosed with polio and was really at, at um, death's door. The doctors were called in and he was not expected to live. But soon after the doctors left, Erickson fell into a coma. <clears throat> Three days later, he regained consciousness and though he was still alive, the paralysis had spread throughout his body. Uh, even his lips were paralyzed and he could not communicate in any way with his family at the time. And the only thing he could move were his eyeballs. And all he could view was the immediate surroundings in his bedroom. So he was quarantined in, in his small house on a rural farm in Wisconsin. At that time, being a 17-year-old, he had a very inquisitive mind, but he became quickly bored with his life being paralyzed until he noticed something amazing, which soon would captivate his whole life. So Erickson's family at that time uh, included seven sisters. He had a brother, two parents, and there was a private nurse. But what started to fascinating him in this state of being fully paralyzed, except for his eyeballs, was the interactions that he would notice and witness with his sisters, especially, that would come in and out of his room and check in on him. And he began to notice their interactions and their communications. And what surprised him was the incongruity of what he heard and what he saw. 
and he, be, he became fascinated in their body language and how it would be quite different from the intent of their words and their inner, pretty much inner thoughts that he started to surmise. And he mentioned that one day he could remember over a dozen forms of no being used with different voice inflections and the hardness of their uh, interaction and voice tone. But he, he also began to, during all these interactions with family members, he began to recognize you know, tension in arms and legs, micro expressions on their face, and all manner of you know, body language that was going on while they were talking and communicating. So while he was unable to participate in the conversations, he became completely absorbed in observing these gestures, pulses in the veins of people's necks, how they cross their arms or legs in conversations, and he even began to notice breathing patterns and how they affected the moods of his sisters. Nothing escaped his curious mind. And he even noticed, with his sisters especially, how different touching of their hair had different meanings in their communications. And then his hearing became even more acute and he started to recognize each family's uh, patterns of speaking. And he could decipher the meaning and nuance of voice inflection and, and all this new information became a second language for him. And he was quickly able to discover after days and days and months in bed in this, in this situation, the real meanings behind their actions and their words. And it became a wonderful game for him and he compiled lots of information about why his family and uh, why they communicated in a certain way and, and how that affected their interactions between each other. So within a few months, <clears throat> he had regained the movement of his lips, and then finally, and then after that, speech. And through using his willpower and imagination, he was able to feel a muscle twitch in his leg. And through paying attention to that and using his imagination, this painstakingly slow process of innervating muscle uh, began. So he was, an, he was able to imagine moving his muscles and parts of his body and, and using his mind to interact with those muscles and slowly but surely regain full control of his body. So he essentially proved that the mind can interact with the body and they can operate together to essentially heal and bring things back to full operation. And we're just barely now today aware of some of this work. So by the late 1920s, Erickson was, was practicing, practicing psychiatry and he developed his own method of, of helping patients through observing their movements. He found that the voice and words were often distracting from the deep meaning that people really wanted. And often he found that people were really unconscious of their true intentions or their body movements. And yet he would see that 
the body movements would leak out their true intentions or wishes. And his observation powers increased hugely over the next few years, and he was able to detect almost imperceptible nonverbal communications. So through that, he became really a natural hypnotist and was able to help people at, at deep subliminal at deep subliminal levels. So what I've just expressed and talked about is, is really a masterful case of empathy. You know, Erickson learned this second language of perception by countless hours of listening and watching his sisters and family members and how they interacted. But more importantly, he learned to not only listen to his sisters, but also feel what was going on in their minds. He had to get out of his own thought process and he had to imagine what they would say, why they would say yes when they really meant no, and to feel the contrary feelings they had in their body. <clears throat> in this way, he was able to bridge into their bodies and minds and actually connect with the animal part of our nature. Another key element that, uh, that happened by mastering this second language was he knew he had to relax to get out of his own ego and his own um, the, the working of his, his mind and get into the, the minds of his patients. And he had to attune himself to their feelings, moods, and body language. And he was able to gain great rapport with people, which is a major goal of neurolinguistic programming, or NLP, which was really fashioned from much of Erickson's pioneering work. So in my view, Milton Erickson could be one of the most naturally empathic people in our history. His willingness to suspend his own self-absorption and focus on others is a huge learning tool for us as we grapple with our current society that is becoming more self-absorbed and narcissistic. Due, part, due somewhat to the techno, uh, you know, technology age that we're in, and the technology is not right or wrong, it's just an aspect or a, it's a technology, it's a skill set, it's, but it's not right or wrong, it's how we use it. So when it's really asking us to set limits and boundaries in the use and application of all our communication devices. And when I looked up the word device in the, the dictionary, I found many uh, root meanings of words like device or devices. The root meaning was, you know, a division of our attention or something that divides. And certainly it divides our time, our attention. So it's interesting we always do that word for our devices. So you know, we set limits on our children's use of technology, yet we're just learning the downside of, of the unlimited use of technology. And if we set limits on our children, how about setting limits on our own use? Um, there's many studies about, you know, the, the electronic waves that come from uh, media and our devices, and we want to pay attention to those studies 
and make sure we're using them in a healthy way. But I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Erickson for his, his empathic ability and, and how he set the, set the example by simply exert, observing people. So here's a few steps that we can learn from Erickson and his lifetime fascination with observing words and behavior in regards to empathy. So by, by paying attention and, and becoming aware, it's possible, as he showed, to alter our bodily operations and using focus with our mind. Just as the way he brought attention to his muscles and by willing them and with the help of massage and awareness to bring them back to full function. Also putting ourselves in other people's shoes, which is empathy, and inside their thoughts and actions allows us to understand what they don't want and what they do want. We can also understand that an empathic skill set requires physical action as well as mental action. And true empathy involves an analytic or a mental component as well as a visceral or physical component to be fully functioning. We have not talked much about narcissists, but we can understand that they're not empathic and they really lack ability to care about others. They see others as extensions of themselves to be used as helpers and pawns to win and succeed for themselves without regard for others. And finally, empathic behavior is a skill set which we know can be learned. So I'm gonna skim some of the high points of, of what I've learned about empathy recently and um, impress on you that it is a skill set. It takes patience, awareness, you know, in your body and your mind. But the reward is it offers a great ability, ability to be in deep rapport with people. So something about narcissists um, and that state of being our self-worth depends on a supportive childhood. I think we can all believe that. How we are raised and allowed to develop our self-esteem. As children, we seek attention all the time. And when there's not enough to go around, we can suffer or we can start to build self-reliance in our own being. And, and that's part of the, the help of the parents to allow us to fail, to be angry and sad, but yet to build our self-reliance that we can soothe ourselves and become happy again. Psychologists know that between the ages of two to five is a key time in, in the development, in our development as children, and we start to slowly separate from our mother. And if our parents encourage those early attempts to individuate and we are supported, then we start to develop our sense of being an individual and we have a sense of being able to learn, grow, and be happy. Albeit, you know, we have bouts of anger, fear, and frustration along that learning path. Usually deep narcissists have a sharp break in this early development and they never construct a consistent or a realistic feeling of a self. And this break in their care can be from the parents both being narcissists themselves 
and being um, self-absorbed in their own lives, too absorbed in their self, uh, too self-absorbed in their own lives to acknowledge the child, or parents can be overly enmeshed with the child and suffocate it with attention, isolate, isolate it from others, or living through the child as a means to validate their own self-worth, both deadly parts of the narcissist growing up. So the usual background of a narcissist is either abandonment or enmeshment. And this results in the child having no foundation of self-worth and seeks they seek constant outward validation and approval. And the nightmare of this can really come to them when they're in their 20s and 30s when they when they're out more on their own in the world and they lack you know, a true sense of solid self-esteem. And we may know narcissists are recognized some in the media and know firsthand how difficult they can be around with their constant scheming for attention and, and over-the-top planning and deals and under-the-table work. And we can even recognize parts of ourselves for times when we are act out in that way. But normally we rebound and give our apologies for our lack of tact or judgment and, and we move forward. You know, moving towards empathy and the skill set involved takes time and patience, as I've said before. Most of us have learned that self-absorbed way of being, so it will take some unlearning of that to move forward with our empathy work. And since our children are so precious to us and they are less inhibited about how they express themselves, and we witness that all the time, they may be a good place to start with our practice. So when you watch them on the playground or around the home, you can start to see and witness simple body language children use and how straightforward it usually is. And note how the older they get, they will start to hide more and more of the actions the words and behaviors that are not accepted by society or schools and other uh, parts of our society. So empathy is the t turning of your attention outward where you start to receive positive feedback from others. People will start to seek you out and want to be around you when you're interested in them. And then emp empathy really creates its own spiral upward of recognition and momentum. So by incorporating the visceral and analytic empathy, your whole body and mind are involved in this new language. And they work together, which they are best adapted to do with your right brain and left brain, and using all the faculties to learn and grow while becoming a supportive human being for society and the world. So this article is, is adapted from my own research and learning from my conflict resolution certificate from Sonoma State University, from mediations that I conducted at Recourse Mediation Services in Santa Rosa, where I was a volunteer, and, and also from Robert Greene's book, it's a great book, The Laws of Human Nature. So I wrote a poem about empathy and, and 
all the beauty it can bestow on us. Again, the search for empathy is a process of learning and unlearning. And if we turn our learning into a game as Erickson did, we may find the benefits of patience, time, and focus well worth our efforts. So here is the poem I entitled Empathy in Nature. I want to stand like a tree, communicating to the world through breath, soil, and sound, through waves of water, the sight of sun, empathically divining the breath of tree, drawing, absorbing water, feeling the path of roots, growth of bark. How trees organize a forest, herd, bug, microbe, and insects. To feel how trees attract birds with awareness, sensitivity, and transformation. What does it take to feel their motives, their body language? The Sioux holy man, black elk, would know of empathy in the trees and all of nature. Black elk would know from his vision on Harney Peak how to speak and feel into nature. He would know the folly of self-absorption and narcissism. Black Elk knows his people, his nature, and wild nature. He would talk with sky, clouds, and rain, and learn their ways. He knows what to say and do at any moment. He would see the trees, ask the leaves, feel the grasses, talk with buffalo, smell the flowers, hear the wind. But he is gone. He is gone. No, 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 no. He is not gone. He lives under the bark of a tree in the nostril of white buffalo in running water above the clouds in the empathy of all things. Again, the poem Empathy in Nature. I want to stand like a tree, communicating to the world through breath, soil, and sound, through waves of water, the sight of sun, empathically divining the breath of tree, drawing, absorbing water, feeling the path of roots, growth of bark, how trees organize a forest, herd bug, microbe, and insect to feel how trees attract birds with awareness, sensitivity, and transformation. What does it take to feel their motives, their body language? The Sioux holy man, black elk, would know of empathy in the trees and all of nature. Black elk would know this from his vision on Harney Peak, how to speak and feel into nature. He would know the folly of self-absorption and narcissism. Black Elk knows his people, his nature, and wild nature. He would talk with sky, clouds, and rain, and learn their ways. He knows what to say and do at any moment. He would see the trees, ask the leaves, feel the grasses, talk with buffalo, smell the flowers, hear the wind. But he is gone. He is gone. No, 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 
He is not gone. He lives under the bark of a tree, in the nostril of white buffalo, in running water, above the clouds, in the empathy of all things. So thank you always for your comments, support, and, and taking action where needed. Uh, remember, action absorbs anxiety. Create and be well. And look for more creativity classes coming up. Um, and I'll post those here on my Facebook page or on the email list I send out. I also include the podcast listening platforms on the article in medium.com. Again, create and be well. <laughs>